Today on Inside the Ropes, a look back at what's potentially a game-changing US Open. We drop by Wingfoot to find an Australian who played a key role in the tournament, and we thank a super with Brett Robinson. Let's go. You're listening to Inside the Ropes, Australia's must-listen-to golf show with exclusive content from both home and abroad. Subscribe through your favourite podcast app or listen at golf.org.au. G'day everybody and welcome to the show. It is Inside the Ropes, episode number 182. I wonder whether Ep 182 coincides with a, um, a seismic week in the history of the great game. Uh, time will tell. Uh, it'll be fascinating to see what sort of plane the game um, operates on and exists on after what we saw at Wingfoot this week. We'll obviously spend a lot of time talking about that at the start. Um, it is Thank a Super Week. We're going to dive deep into that. We're going to find out who were the fussiest eaters as well in a slightly um, novel aside uh, to the whole thing uh, with a special guest, Ree Waddington, joining us a bit later on. By Jesus, a lot to talk about. Mark Hayes, good afternoon. Uh, good, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever you happen to be listening to us. Hello to you. Hello, Murray. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, a week that, not necessarily for the obvious reasons, but one that stands a great chance of being fairly seismic in the history of golf. Um, you don't want, we overblow blow these things sometimes, but this one's got a real uh, an air about inevitability to it. I think, yep. Um, yep. and not necessarily at the at the uh, because of one special player or one special feat, but more the manner in which Bryson DeChambeau did it and what it means to golf in the future. It's a we we pre-record this show for podcast purposes and obviously the radio show that you're listening to now. If you're listening to it on radio, it's been pre-recorded earlier in the week, so we can't do um, talk back. I, I, this is the one of the one of the weeks I'd really love to be able yeah. to open the lines up and take some calls from you know players, people who love the game, uh, and get their sense for um, for for the performance. Um, whether you're excited by it, whether whether you're not, whether you're concerned about it, uh, there's a number of reactions from around the world, and there's a combination of um, themes that run through it. Hazy, there's there's a concern element, there's there's absolute admiration for what he's done. I don't think anybody, um, no matter how you feel about him personally, I don't think anybody can deny the fact that what he's done is admirable and pretty bloody impressive, to be honest. And amongst some, and you know, some some younger pros out there, um, there's an air of excitement about what he does. That they like the fact that they're oh, yeah. part of this kind of bastion of players coming through that are, you know, shaking the foundations of the game and, and taking it to a new level. There's all of that mixed into the Deschambeau conversation. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And there's one really key element, Andy, which gets overlooked, which we shouldn't do, um, is. It doesn't really affect 99% of people who are listening in some mm. respects because the way that your course is set up to play this weekend or next weekend bears no resemblance to a winged foot on steroids. Uh, it's you know, and it's golf as it always was. There might be five, six, seven meters difference in your drives now with a bit of technology, but we're not confronting the same mathematical issues that Bryson DeChambeau does. So, uh, look, I. We've got to be mindful of the fact that we talk about professional golf as if it's a uh, a broad brush painting of all of golf, and it's not. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I yep. think, like, and this is true of 
all our main sports, Annie, particularly in Aussie rules, uh, rugby league, um, netball for that matter, they're all vastly different sports at a community level to they are at the elite level, but never mm. has that been more true in golf. Never standing on the first tee has Bryson DeChambeau been more different to the bloke who's playing off 13 at um, wherever, Royal Pines yep. this weekend. Yep. It, it, it's it's chalk and cheese. It's a different sport, and we probably need to realise that some of this conversation doesn't really impact the average player, but from a professional side, which is where we do a lot of digging here, it's, uh, it's potentially seismic, as we said. Well, that's what we watch, isn't it? I, mean, I think it's, it's, a, it's a fair and reasonable explanation, but hopefully people you know who listen to our podcast realise that you and me and everybody listening is in a very different boat to the, to the players that we spend most of our time watching and talking about. And with all due respect to, to the likes of me, I don't, no one's going to pay good money to come and watch me play golf, and I wouldn't expect them to. So there's very little interest in how I hit the ball, but, and I don't change the course and trajectory of the history of the game and challenge some of the great courses. Like, like you said, 99.9% of our listeners... I've been down a couple of times, Andy, before we've played, and you've put a smile on my face, so maybe I would pay to go <laughs> exactly. and see some of that sort of... Yeah, it's the, the, for, comedy, for comedy value, I would have thought. <laughs> so so just, where, 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 where do you... I say, Andy, yep. just ar- yep. around Bryson DeChambeau specifically, um, you and I both, but I won't pour you into this bucket at the moment, but I'll, I'll say personally I've been really, really, really disappointed with his pace of play mm. and some of the things he does around, uh, I would say, general etiquette with media when he's not playing so well. Yep. Um, yep. But more more importantly, abusing officials when things aren't going Bryson's way. Um, the speed of play is... Oh, my God, it's... It's brutal. horrific, mate. It's, it's horrific. It's absolutely horrific, and I can't, yep. I can't get around that. I really want to like Bryson because I think he's quirky, and I, I love the fact that he's... Um, you know, pushing the boundaries of a sport. We, we we give all sorts of credence to all sorts of people in different fields for pushing the boundaries. And we haven't had someone do it in golf like this maybe ever. Um, mm. and, I'm, and I mean that literally. Like he's every spare waking minute he's got, he seems to go away, train something into his routine and come back with something a little bit more radical. And, you know, that's to be commended. It's just the package that it's in can be so temperamental and so pedestrianly slow uh, and those things while necessarily good for his game are the exact opposite they're necessarily bad for the sport um, and and I don't know sometimes we I feel like that gets the better of it I, I don't want to diminish his achievements that was that was astonishing no. what he did particularly on the last day no, no, so he's got an entitlement about him, which is part of the problem with a lot of these blokes on the PJ Tour. And, um, you know, look, we'll, get to, we'll get to a couple of things that happened, um, you know, during the US Open that, that drive us down that track about this, this inability for the game to allow itself to be covered and challenged and discussed openly for fear of tarnishing its own image. It's ridiculous what... What, you know, and and Danny, the, the coverage of Danny Lee and Patrick Reed in play, um, in the actual cut and thrust of the real time um, in the tournament is embarrassing, and and it feeds into this, um, into this impression that some of us have 
that they're they're a, there's a they're they live in this little protected bubble. The 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 player, particularly the American players, on the PJ Tour, the elite American players on the PJ Tour, and they have this sense of entitlement about them. I think that when they're out on the golf course, they're king, and everybody else to hell with. I'm the most important person. I don't have a regard for the bigger picture. I'll do what I want to do. And that's okay. It's a, they're in a cut and thrust, high-end, you know, tough professional sport. And maybe that's what they need to be um, to achieve what they set out to achieve. But the thing about DeChambeau, in amongst all of that, is that he will inspire copycats. This is what's going to happen at the elite level of the game. There's, there's no question about that. People will think I want to be like him, and there's a there's some there's some there's some telling elements of all of that. At a very superficial level, there was a picture of DeChambeau after the after he'd won, and he's about to kind of I don't know whether he's about to leave or it was a setup shot they had ready to go in case he did win. But there he is with the trophy, standing in front of his net jet, perched on the bonnet of his Bentley. And if you, if you, it, it, the extravagance of it all, oh, the, the absolute uber wealth extravagance of it all is mind blowing and it is absolutely aspirational for any elite level 20, 15 year old male golfer on the planet and probably feeds into the female game. That'll, that the power element of their game is emerging, but it's not where we're at with the men yet. But if you're a 15, 16, 17-year-old kid anywhere on the planet right now and you have aspirations to be the best player in the world, there's only one thing you're doing. There's only one thing you're doing. You are not working on your five irons. You are hitting your driver, you are getting big, and you are smashing the crap out of the thing. And you're trying to get it as close to the green as you possibly can, take all your mid-irons out of your bag, you're hitting driver and wedge, and hopefully your putting game's strong, and you're going to win a lot. And you're going to make a lot of money. That's what every young, good young player, male player on the planet right now is thinking they're going to do. Yeah, and and I definitely think definitely think the women's game will follow suit mm. um, as well as you, as you said. But the only thing you're doing with a five iron right now is you're taking taking it and all the other mid irons and long irons you've got, and you're staking stoking up a little fire in your backyard yes, so you can exactly. have a bit more light to swing your driver because yep. uh, you, you just if, if you haven't got the capacity to hit carry the ball as 300 plus yards in the air um say yards because that's what they're dealing with over there mm-hmm. um in reference to you know DeChambeau's 360 yard drives down the stretch if you're not hitting it that far in the air um you're not competing it's as simple as that and mm. and until we do otherwise with the technology, the the courses will be obsolete um, in terms of traditional old fashioned play. Um, Mike Clayton did a really good piece, which yeah. I think sums it up nicely. It, it praises DeChambeau for the passion, the flair, the science that he's bringing to the game, um, but it also questions where the sport is going. Not what not what he's doing with it. It's not about the things that I bemoaned a few minutes ago. It's about um, can the sport handle this stuff? And the commentary around it on social media subsequent was, you know, javelins. Yeah. Um, they changed javelins so that guys didn't throw them <laughs> into the people running the 200 metres at the other end of the stadium. Um, yep. yep. Baseball bats were banned from being aluminium because you couldn't knock down the bleachers 
at a major league baseball stadium and, and build another 50 meters on the back of it. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're lucky with golf. It's outside. We consider moving greens and tees and everything regularly, but, you know, in an agronomy sense and a world um, sustainability sense, that's impractical too. So we come back down to the technology debate because necessarily that's where we can change things. I still think that would in, in advantage to Shambo to be hitting at 310 as opposed to, um, I don't know, Greg Chalmers hitting at 240. Sorry, Greg, probably a yep. regular listener to the podcast. But, you know, if we wound it back, it'd all be um, proportional. So, you know, I do think that it's becoming more pressing than ever, to be honest, Andy, because so, yeah. if we ever want to see a mid-iron to a green in a major championship again um, and have the f- full array of skills, because that's what major championships should be, to test every skill that you can bring to the game as opposed to bomb and gouge, um, then we the time is now. The time is absolutely now. And again, no disrespect to Bryson. He's just heightened the need for it to happen. And before that, in the world, number one is Dustin Johnson. And he, he's arguably a straighter driver, but yeah. he's doing the same thing. It, it, it's, it's, the fundamental, it's at the fundamental core of everything that upper echelon's doing right now. No question about it. And, and you know, the only time you see a five-iron hit is on a 230-yard par three nowadays. It's the only time you ever see them <laughs> used. It's the only time. you And so they're, they're extending, you know, they're extending the par threes. And it's the, the, the subtlety of a brilliant 130-metre par three. I mean, you just, unless you play down here, you just don't see them anywhere in the world anymore. They laugh at that. So the old courses... You know, in in Great Britain and a couple down here, you just don't see 100. You don't see brilliantly designed short par threes anymore because well, the, the US has just got no time for it. Uh, right now, I'd open up the lines if we could. Not, oh, sorry, go on. Yep, yep. No, I was I was going to say that that's very true, and those you've got to keep in mind um, how how good these guys are to be able to do it. Mm. That goes to the difference between. Um, what I said before between a really good player at club level and a really good player on the PGA tour. I don't even know how to explain it. If you were a plus three or plus four handicapper, you're the, you're the big person on campus at your club. You are, Mm. you are elite. You are brilliant. You are doing all sorts of things. If you're a plus four handicapper on the PGA tour, you're in the, you're in the doll queue. You, you are so far off the pace. You know, you don't make any cuts. You're, you're, your chop liver. Um, mm. I think I've told this story before. I apologize if I have, but we were walking around before the Oakmont US Open. Um, so what was that? 2016, I think, from memory, with Jason Day on the practice rounds and just, you know, chatting to him, watching him practice. And I said, Jay, how would, how, how would I go on this course? And he goes, you mean playing it from the tips? And I said, yes. And I'll never forget. He goes, "What are you playing off?" And I said, "Oh, I don't know, around about 10. And he goes, "Um, are you gonna if you putt well, maybe 130, I reckon." <laughs> I'm like, "Oh, come on!" He goes, "Mate, you can't reach the fairways on 10 holes. You can't get to the fairways. So let's not, um, you know, not admire what these guys are doing. It, it is physically incredible that they can play these courses. And but the courses are stretched to the bloody limit, Andy. These yeah, are, yeah, yeah, this, yeah. If they played it off the possible number where they could have set it up this week and they didn't because on any given day they had a hole or two shifted forward it was the 10th longest it would have been the 10th longest course ever played in the US Open and that takes into consideration you know four of them at I think Aaron Hills and four of them at 
uh, Chambers Bay or something like that, yeah, where yeah, yeah. they're not traditional courses, um, and that 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 accounts for eight of them probably. So mm-hmm. you know we're talking a seriously beastly long course here, so, and it's chopped yeah. liver. So you and I, we we all uh, well, well, yeah, I'll put us both in the same category, but we have others. But we listen to and we take the you know we read and we hear you know people who have um, a a deep concern for the great golf courses. That's who we we talk about, and we've grown up here, and we've been spoilt and lucky to play you know for the bulk of our golfing lives, great golf courses here in Victoria. So, so we, we're a bit jaundiced and a bit biased, I think, in terms of what we think is, you know, golf. This is what we think golf is. I wonder if we open the lines up right now, what people would say. Do they want to see? What do they want to see? Do they, are they excited by the, the DeChambeaus, the Wolfs, the Johnsons? I mean, the driving distance of Lucas Herbert and Joaquin Neiman and these, they're smashing the ball, these blokes. Like, their driving distances, it's not just the big hulking. I mean, Lucas is a big, powerful kid now, but Joaquin Neiman's skinny. He's skinny and small, and he's crunching the thing. Do, do, do you want the, the, the golfer that we are talking about, the guy who plots his way around a golf course, well, they, they don't exist. They 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 didn't they're not there on the weekend on at at Wingfoot they're not they you know they're not they're not playing the game anymore at the elite level those guys so I wonder whether we that's about. gone I wonder if we've lost that I wonder whether you, we're all harking back to a bygone era that we'd like to see more of um, but I wonder whether the and I'm going to be ageist about this and I don't mean to be because I'm sure there's sixty year olds who love watching Deschamps and wouldn't change it for quids I wonder whether the under forties Oh no! What are these old blokes talking about? Oh, let him hit it. And Deschambeau is going to put a 40, 48 inch driver in his bag, come Augusta, and he's going to try and hit it three hundred and sixty, three hundred and seventy, and he's going to try and put another ten pounds. This is what he's all. This is what he's already talking about after after wing foot. So I don't know. We, you and I might be. We might be out of step. Oh, I'm sure in some respects we are, Andy. I, you know, I, I, we get criticised for some of the things we talk about here on a routine basis, which is mm. fine. Uh, I, I just, <clears throat> pardon me, I think that a lot of people don't care. They, they actually admire the shot tracer as it ticks over 250, 260, 270, yeah, up to exactly. 340, whatever. <clears throat> That's yeah. just part of watching golf for it's a, a video generation. Game. Yeah. Yeah, it, is, it really is a video game. Absolutely. Mm. You go to, into your extra power bar and you hang on for yep. dear life and hope to try and click <laughs> it in the middle. Yep. It's exactly what it is. Um, I, I just again reiterate that I just think it's so distant from clubland golf these days that we need to almost put an asterisk on it in conversations. Mm. I just I don't even know what to you know where to where to take the conversation because there's people who absolutely agree with the direction the game's heading. Um, there's no doubt about that, and it's or I reckon a fifty fifty split because there's a lot yeah. of people, young and old, male, female, whatever, who want to see. Uh, golf that's more akin to what they play, and that's why the attraction for women's golf is becoming so strong. Um, but yeah, Andy, look, it's it, he's he's taken it to a new level, and the fact that, as has been well documented, he missed more than half of the fairways oh, yeah. on supposedly the most penal setup we could possibly muster in world golf, the U.S. Open, wherever it is, yet still managed to shoot under par substantially um, on a 
arguably, uh, I mean, not as fiery perhaps, but definitely a longer course than Jeff Ogilvy won at 11 years ago by 11 shots. Uh, sorry, where 14 years ago by 11 shots. It, you know, a testament to him, but he's not a 14-shot better player than Jeff Ogilvy at his prime on an equal playing field. So. Well- yeah, well, Jeff Ogilvy's the type of player we're talking about. Jeff Ogilvy could get it out there in his, in his, amongst his cohort, but he was a proper golfer. Like, he, he knew where to miss and, and he knew when to go and when not to. This bloke just goes all the time. And, and, and it's yep. actually instructive, Andy, that the person we talk about as a sort of a, you know, a shaper and a knocker around of the ball, Colin Morikawa, still probably hits at 30 metres, 35 metres past where Greg Norman hit it in his prime. Yeah, that's, yeah, spot on. So 23 fairways hit. He was 26th in the field for fairways hit. He was 5th in the field greens in regulation. So that that, that tells you that he just wants to miss it on the right side. Just 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 let me miss it on the right side. I'm so good with my wedges now. I'll be able to get it sort of up and down. 7.90 total strokes gained on the field. I mean, the numbers say he doesn't care where he misses. The one that area that I do think needs a little bit of a chat, strokes gained putting and short game. So we, we get obsessed with his, um, you know, with the, the driving distance and all of that. It was plus 5.42 short game strokes gained, and it was plus 4.59 putting strokes gained on the field. So so the short game is is a strength, as because mm-hmm. he knows now what he has to be good at. He knows he has to be good with his wedges, and the putting is, is a thing. The arm lock... Rory was interesting, I reckon, after the tournament. Rory McIlroy asked about it, and he said, look, he's, he's playing within the rules. He's getting a, he, he sort of, I'm going to paraphrase here and get it wrong, but he basically said he's getting away with what he's allowed to get away with, with the, with the putting. You can't anchor. We know that the long putters. We can't do any of that now, but there's still this arm lock um, set up that DeChambeau has that I think is raising eyebrows. And, and again, it's one of those things that has been let, you know, develop because it's they're chasing the rules. They're chasing what's legal a bit here. Um, and he is getting away with what the game allows him to get away with at the moment. I, I wonder whether this is one of those things that will demand questions of it in the not too dis You know, I wonder whether that'll happen. The biggest um, fresh topic that's going on out there, and it's not, it's not fresh per se, like we've discussed it before, but is the PGA Tour is reluctant to come down hard on anyone who they consider a golden goose, Andy. So, mm. you know, to, oh. to, to rule harshly against, you know, when we'll talk about him later in the podcast, Patrick Reed or mm. Bryson DeChambeau or anything like that doesn't fly well with what they're about because they're, they're a player union. Let's, let's, let's be, you know, honest about this. They're a player union. They're looking after their players. They don't give a stuff about the game in mm. comparison to their players. So the topic has gone to can the US Open, the Open, and the Masters, who are all run by um, objective, in inverted commas, bodies to the PGA, uh, can they run tournaments where rules are actually enforced probably the way they're intended to be enforced, if that's mm. the polite way of putting it? Can we have control balls? Can we have no anchored putting in any sense. Can we have the putt of the shortest club in the bag? And I think there is momentum growing because those titles that you win, um, you still they're still going to attract the best players. If not for those championships, then the PGA has got a, an armbar on the professional golfing world because it uh, it controls the money and the key players. 
um, but they're not going to overrun the importance of the major championships, especially the three most significant ones in 99.9% of the population's eyes. So it would be a watch this space situation, Andy. I, I, it's going to be fascinating. I, I, again, for me, full credit to Bryson DeChambeau here, in a here. technical sense. Like, absolutely no doubt about brilliant. that. No, yep. no qualms at all. Yep, no doubt about that whatsoever. Look, we probably get a, need to get a wriggle on. We're going to we're going to take a slight gear change on the other side of the break. I, I'd love feedback to this. I'd love to come back next yeah. week and have a swag of emails or Twitter responses. Uh, you, where do you sit on the Deschambeau debate? Um, are you a fan? Do you want more of this sort of stuff? Um, or you can find us on Twitter. What, what's the best? You're the guru of the emails. What's the best email address to hit us up at if you've got a view on this that um, you want to share? Uh, yeah, well, definitely on Twitter is at inside the underscore ropes. Uh, that's the best way to go. If you want to, if you want to, yeah, that's probably the best way. I think email is going to get complicated, but on Twitter at inside the underscore ropes. So, um, please, I'd love that. I agree with you, Andy. I'd love to hear what people are saying, because I'd like to know if we're out of tune as much as anything, because, um, you know, it is, it's a changing world and we need to adapt with it. We'll get get to a couple of other issues from the US Open a bit later on. We'll take you around the world and talk about the Aussies. And oh, it'll be a painful chat when we get to Hannah Green. We'll have a chat about that when we get there. <laughs> uh, four Aussies made the cut, by the way. Uh, Lucas Herbert, the best. Great result for him. Tied 31. Day, Scott and Smith all tied for 38th. And our great mate, Lucas Michel, um, enjoyed the experience clearly uh, to be there and be part of it all. He didn't, only one amateur made the cut. So uh, the, the AMs were in... Um, they're in trouble, the amateurs. That was a real test of an emerging golf game. I think um, Lucas uh, actually did a Lucas Michelle rather did a really really uh, admirable job for probably thirty one of the thirty six holes. Yeah, I agree, but but there were four doubles and a triple thrown in amongst it, um, and that just kills his card. And without that, he's you know be safely through and away you go but mm. you know you play it over 36 not 31 and that's a massive learning curve for him because um you know you when you have a bad shot uh, and i was talking to lucas herbert through the week on um, just texting him to get some information about how he was going and he said once you hit a bad tee shot he said the, my entire train of thought then is how do i not make a double bogey yeah right and yeah. that's you know that that's a lesson you can't learn when you're playing on you know, very nice Australian courses because you're still at that level of game um, trying to attack and make a possibly a birdie, but definitely a par. Mm. Um, but Lucas Herbert in his short major championship career has learnt that once you get off Broadway, you've got to hack it back out and fight like hell to make a bogey. Mm. So um, it's a massive lesson for Lucas Michelle and the others. I really think Adam Scott was um, interesting, Andy. I, I did some stats. He was 11 over through the first five holes cumulatively through the week. Wow. And he kept saying, I just, I've just hit the ground. I can't, I'm not running at full speed when I get out on the course. And, and those first five holes chewed him up and spat him out. Again, without that, he's in the top handful of players. So, yep, another, another major goes past where we haven't yep. um, had the big result, but. I think from Lucas Herbert's perspective specifically, really impressive signs of what lies ahead. Here, here. Uh, what were they eating? Who were the fussy eaters? Who were the ones that had particular orders? We'll find out when we come back. You're listening to Inside the Ropes. Let's go back Inside the Ropes with Golf Australia. Welcome back to the show. Great to have you with us. Um, there's a few other bits and pieces from the US Open, the wash-up to it all that we uh, need to get stuck into, and we will in a moment, but... 
Uh, just taking a little left turn uh, for a sec. Uh, how does a young man from a town... I'm going to pronounce it probably incorrectly, Kaganya, uh, up near the Victorian New South Wales border. How does a kid from that neck of the woods end up the executive chef at Wingfoot for the US Open? Uh, it's a story I could ask you an answer for, Hazy, but you probably don't know. So let's ask the bloke I'm talking about, Roy Waddington, is that person, and he's been good enough to join us on the show. G'day, Roy. Gentlemen, how you doing? How does that happen? How do you end up, is it Kiganya that, that you come from? How do you end up from, from starting there and end up where you are right now? Spot, spot on on the pronunciation. Not many people get that one right. Uh, mate, I, I you know, started my uh, culinary sort of career back in mid nineties, ninety five, ninety six, uh, working in Albury and I travelled all up the uh, east coast. Worked up in Port Douglas, Brisbane, um, found my way back to Melbourne. And we opened up a restaurant in in Kiganya, which was still still going now on a, my folks' uh, eight hundred acre property. And an opportunity came up to consult for a restaurant over in San Diego back in two thousand six called Bondi. So we went and did that, and we just felt my wife and I fell in love with uh, with the state. So we've only been back a few times. And, uh, you know, as a Mad Hawk supporter, there's been a lot of premierships between 2006 and now that I've missed out on. It might be a while until you chalk up your next one, Ryan. I'm sure that's one, something that'll just a little jab into the ribs of uh, our co-host here as well. Well, that, that's, a, that's, that's, a, that's, a, like, that's a fascinating career arc. So you get to San Diego, but how do you end up involved um, with golf? So... I played a fair bit of golf in San Diego, um, you know, playing Torrey Pines uh, there. And a good friend of mine who had taken a year off from school teaching over here in Connecticut, he was the, and he was the golf coach at uh, Greenwich High School, uh, he came over and he was actually going to work with Phil Mickelson's brother, um, but that didn't work out. So we played a little bit of golf, and then I was actually going to move back to Australia. And my wife and I were up in Santa Barbara. We'd sold all our furniture. We are about to go back to Australia, and he said there's a job going at Wingfoot. You should look at this. I said, never heard of Wingfoot. What's this? Um, he goes, you need to look at it. So they actually hired me unseen as the executive sous chef. And then about a year, two years later, I uh, took over as the head job. So literally right place, right time. Um, it's been an amazing experience. I've never worked at a private club before. Um, unbelievable membership. Uh, they've been so supportive. And we sort of really reinvented the whole culinary program you know, really brought that Australian farm-to-table um, concept to it, which um, over here in the States, you know, a lot of these clubs are sort of a uh, bit, bit of an RSL sort of feel to them. So, you know, we change our menu every week, use local farms, and really really get the um, get the, the local community involved. Um, so it's been a, you know, it's been a really cool transition to be part of. No, that's awesome. So, so mostly over here... Yeah, there's a couple of BLTs required, a few bowls of hot chips, and a couple of steak sandwiches. That's pretty much it over here. What's the what's the um, standard sort of operating fare of the uh, membership at a club like Wingfoot look like, right? So the menu changes every week. For dinner, we've mm. got about 35 items, and I would say 20 of them change every week. And it's really, you know, I have the philosophy is. I don't so much design the menu. I, I let the purveyors design the menu on what's available. And you know, sometimes we'll change the menu two or three times a week. If, it's, you know, if, if a um, fishmonger calls me and says, I've got this beautiful black bass coming from Rhode Island, but I've only got 15 pounds, all right, we'll run this tonight, and then we'll change it for tomorrow night. So 
um, like anything, I've got an amazing, you know, anyone who has success has an amazing team behind them and I've hired very, very, um, very smartly and, and also a good training program. Um, I've got a young lady by the name of Chrissy Bennett, who, um, Jamaican girl who had never worked in the kitchen and she's been with me for nine years. She's now my executive sous chef and, you know, she's, uh, she has a palate better than anybody. Um, so, you know, I put a lot of, uh, a lot of the credit onto her and what she's been able to achieve as well. Oh, it sounds a bloody, it sounds amazing. So, so, you, so that, that's your job. Then the US Open comes mm-hmm. to town uh, and you have to cater. I imagine you're doing the catering and the, the, the prep for all of the players. How does that work? Do you get inundated with special requests and you have to, to the best of your ability, meet those requests? Um, not, not really any special requests. Well, go, I said go back. Like, uh, so the US Open was announced. It was going to be a wing foot. Um, this is their sixth US Open. It's a pretty iconic venue. You know, major tournaments are part of their DNA. And when we found out that we were going to get it again, that was about five years ago, 2015. There was a lot of planning that went into it. Um, we were expecting about 40,000 people every day. And then COVID hit. And COVID was just, you know, the epicenter was New Rochelle, which is about two miles away. Um, oh, yeah. It was it was a really really tough time really really tough time one of my um, one of my line cooks or one of my chefs actually passed away from it so it really hit home for us and then but from a US Open planning perspective like we didn't even know if we were going to hold the US Open it was you know they were talking about maybe it's going to be moved to Oakmont or a different place or it'd be held in December over in California so there was a lot going on um, but you know to the USGA's credit they they. Held um, held steady, and you know we got it through. And obviously there was no fans, which is, is a lot different. So I, we were just catering for the players. And what was nice about that is there was a lot of a lot of just one on one interactions with the players. Now some of them, you know, didn't really come in too much, but we were doing about say there's a field of 100 and 144. I'd say we do about 100 for breakfast each day, about 100 120 for lunch, um, and then. We didn't really want too many groups gathering in the evening, um, so they went home and did their own thing. But we'd provide some meals to take back to their house, by renting them to the hotel and so forth. But it was a it was a cool experience. You know, it would have been nice to have those big crowds of forty thousand people and hear the cheers when Bryson DeChambeau's driving at bloody four hundred odd yards. But uh, you know, it was uh, there's something special. Everybody's going to remember this one. That's for sure. So, so I'm fascinated. So, were they? Was there a daily menu for the players, or was it a set fare? Like, how do how does it actually work? The players so, so talk to, talk us through lunch. So, the players are coming in for okay. lunch. How does that how does that yep. work? So it's all it's all a la carte. We did a menu. It's probably about uh, I think nine to ten items, um, and there was grab and go stuff too. Some so it was pretty uh, it was pretty strict in the sense that. Only the players could come into the clubhouse. So the caddies couldn't even come in. or And there was no spouses or anything like that. So there was, we just literally created this bubble where the players would come in and we're only catering to them. So um, we had things on there like uh, po- you know, tuna poke bowls for lunch, the Mexican protein bowls. You, know, you can still get a BLT. Um, yeah. But, you know, a lot of the guys just, you know, and we'd do some daily specials and they would do like a, a cool tuna schwam or... A, just some different sort of stuff that they, you know, wouldn't normally get. And I was actually having a talk to John Rahm very briefly because uh, we, 
you know, a side story is a, a caddy that I had for me when I was out at Bighorn out in the desert two years ago was an old roommate of John Rahm's, and he messaged me and said, make sure you say hi to him. And one of the things John said, he said, you know, we've we've been getting these box lunches at every tournament because of COVID. They haven't had the facilities open. The fact that we have the whole unbelievable clubhouse at Wingfoot and we're sitting in the dining room and getting real food, he goes, you know, this is awesome. This is absolutely awesome. So I think they were very, very appreciative of it. I know, um, I know Scotty... Adam was uh, was super super happy too. We said we did some meals for him and his team to take back to their house. And uh, what a what a, a great man he is. He's um, as down to earth as you'll ever get. That's awesome. That's awesome. So so just before we let, it's a fascinating journey you've been on, and what a what a um, what a role you get to play and get up close to these guys and you know, have a chat to them when they're hopefully in a pretty relaxed state. It's a it's a for somebody who loves their golf as you clearly do. It's a it's a great sidebar to um, what comes your way. But how has you mentioned New Rochelle and people who have been following you know the COVID nineteen you know over in the states and wherever else they live, New Rochelle's name will, will sort of bounce off the conversation at them because of you know the, just how significant a spot that was. How has COVID affected life at at Winged Foot in the last couple of months? Well, golf has just been absolutely booming. I mean, it, we we were busier this year than we ever have. And even in the US Open year, you know, it, it's been crazy. All the other local golf courses, because it is the one sport you can do outside with social distancing. So, you know, as far as uh, that side of the actual rounds of golf have been unbelievable. Food and beverage, people are still a little bit hesitant. Um, you know, they uh, we're at 50% capacity, but we have so much outdoor space. So I think any private club probably has an upper hand on you know, some of these poor New York City restaurants, I just it's, I just don't know how they'll survive. I really don't. You know, I'm hearing some of my fellow colleagues back in Melbourne in a similar situation that, you know, there's the margins on in restaurants are, are very slim as it is and to not be open for six months or not to be able to open at full capacity, I just, I'm not sure how, how the industry is going to survive. Right, can I ask you one quick question which is unrelated to everything you've been talking about, but there was rumours around... A, a uh, bit of a bit of biffo between uh, the USGA and and the Wingfoot membership at d- different points of the first round and before the second round. Did you catch any wind of that from your perspective? No, not at all. You know, I think. Look, I think there's always you know Steve Rabbiter, who's the superintendent, is a pretty proud guy. Um, does an amazing job. The golf courses have never looked so good. Um, you know, and Wingfoot sort of has this this pride on being somewhere that's under par and one of the toughest courses. And I think there's also a history with the USGA and it, wherever it is, whether it's at Shinnecock or whatever the setup is. You know, the the membership is always a very proud bunch, and they, you know, it's their place that they go, they're going to play all the time. I didn't find that that much. I think the media sort of took that a little bit bit further than what it was. But at the end of the day, it's the USGA's place to set the course up the way, the way they want for, the, for that week. Um, you know, they, they come in, they take over. So, look, I think it was probably blown out of proportion. Maybe if something happened behind closed doors, but I didn't hear any of it. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, that's, the, that's the story I took away from it too, that, the, you know, a club as proud as Wingfoot wouldn't risk jeopardise, you know, 100 years of tradition to have a, have a small fry argument about one round of golf. So I'm glad you shaped that up for us. I just want to just ask you like, yeah, what it's yeah. like because we, yeah, because we, we saw the, uh, you know the the magnificent and genuinely is a magnificent looking clubhouse. And I heard oh. on the commentary a lot of times that 
people like Curtis Strange were declaring it the best 19th hole in the world. What's it like to actually just drive up to that place day after day and does it ever get old? You know, that's a great question because I think what it did for a lot of the staff, and we've been talking about it, a few of us actually went out and played, played around yesterday and we were talking about it that all the staff are very, very proud to work there. And I think sometimes you take it for granted. You know, you drive through those gates and you sort of come in like anyone. It's like a, another mundane day going to work. But when you see it on the world stage like that, and some of those aerial shots were just unbelievable. And uh, Dan Hicks, who was uh, lead lead commentator, he's also a member, he's, you know, a dear friend as well. So to hear him and such a proud moment for him to be commentating the US Open at his home club, um, it's... You still get goosebumps, you know, that it's just, mm. it, it really is a special place. You know, and I've I've been lucky enough to play at some of the best places in the world. And, you know, I just, I still feel very, very lucky to, to say that I work at Wingfoot and that we have this, uh, this amazing um, establishment that we get to come into those unbelievable gates every day. Hey, Rye, um, it's a great story um, from a little town up on the border between Victoria and New South Wales to where you are right now. Um, it's a fascinating yarn. Uh, thanks for sharing some of your insights and yarns, and um, we appreciate you being part of the show. Thanks for your time. No, no problem, guys. Let's, uh, let's go Hawks 2021. Yeah, Perfect, maybe. Right. Good man, talk it up. Yeah, yeah they'll still be perching the good ones up, I reckon, <laughs> by the end of 2020. <laughs> hey, all, all the best, mate. Thanks for being part of it. Roy Waddington, the executive chef at Winged Foot. That's a hell of a story, isn't it? I don't know. How did you know? How did you find out he was doing that? How, how was, your, was your link to him? A uh, little birdie told me, and I actually um, rang Roy up during the week, managed to. Uh, get one of the USGA staff to put us in contact, which is awesome from them. Um, and Rye is actually pretty well connected. I didn't even know that, you know, he knew people like Stephen Pitt, for example, yeah, right. um, the former boss of GA, but you know, he's pretty well connected am- among those Aussies who go to <clears throat> the United States to play some golf. I think he's played rounds with, or at least had a lot of conversations and things to do with Brendan Goddard, et cetera, for example, yeah, yeah. Um, who, who find out and seek these beautiful courses. And, I, you know, he's passionate about his golf, so that's great. And I, I just think it shows that there's so many different aspects to the golf industry. If you're sitting here and you can't quite get it to the plus six or plus seven you need that we were speaking about earlier, you know, there are other ways to get to the top of the industry. And, you know, let's face it, if you're the executive chef at Wingfoot, that's that's the top of your industry. That's oh, well done. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So we had a couple of other bits and pieces before we get to the break that we needed to tidy up from a US Open perspective. Give me give me one that you that you want to put on the agenda before we get away from this thing. Well, I'm going to leave one for you and we'll talk about that. But my one that I want to put on the table is Danny Lee. Mm. Um it wasn't released at the start, but due to a lot of public pressure, uh, an unbelievable six putt on the 18th green, which was his second round um, by the New Zealander, who's, I, I've never met him, Andy. He's, he's So I, I don't speak from personal experience, but he's getting a reputation as one of the most flighty people on the PGA Tour. And I don't think he'd be super proud of that, to be honest. And I'm not sure what's worse, the six putt on the 36th hole or to withdraw immediately mm. afterwards, citing a wrist injury. Now, Danny Lee had a, a putt for a par to shoot a 73 in the second round, which was 
comfortably the toughest day of the U.S. Open scoring wise. He that was an, that's not a great round, but it's a mm. very 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 serviceable round and better than the average score for the day. If he knocks in a four footer there, three and a half footer for for par, he misses it. He walks around, pays it some attention, misses the one back, but still has like a two footer maybe for a seventy five. No attention now. Knocks it ten no. feet past. Knocks it six feet past. Eventually has six putts. Signs for a quintuple bogey nine. Petulant, club slamming into the bag as he walks off the green. All caught on camera because there's no escaping these things during a U.S. Open. And then minutes later, withdraws with a sore wrist. Um, so he had made the cut despite all that stuff. You know, honestly, some of the most embarrassing petulant behavior i've seen in a long time pull your head in danny sorry but you cannot do that you know if you miss six putts in a row you miss six putts in a row it is what it is but don't withdraw please i mean just be half competitive about the whole situation i think that was really disappointing he's staggeringly bad behavior the whole this leads me to one of my things. We talked about this before on this show and it's about this reluctance that golf has to show the warts, it, it, mm. it, it's it's happened here in Australia, and I've I've been part of it in, in a coverage sense. You know, the day that Daly, I've told this story. The day that John Daly emptied his bag into the water on the eleventh at the lakes and walked off because he kept you know the tin cup moment, and, and we had that. We were there. We had a camera there. I was standing there. We come down. He's doing this, and they wouldn't come down and show it. They didn't want the black mark. They didn't want the embarrassment. They don't show Patrick Reed. They don't show Patrick Reed, you know, in, improving his life. There'll be some people who say he didn't, but you know, that some people will say he did. And they don't show Danny Lee doing what he did until the next day when it gets exposed by other people who get hold of the vision, put it out on social media, and say, "Have a look at this." As a as a um, viewer and as a storyteller, you have to show that stuff. You have to make a big deal of the Patrick Reed um, chip shot on the back of nine. If you don't make that part of your live telling of the story while it's taking place, you are not telling the truth. You are lying and you are protecting, you're doing it for brand management and it is, you are protecting the players against themselves and it is, um, it's actually, that is immature and it is um, an indictment on the sport that they don't do that. It, it, when, when, when the dugout's clear in a baseball when that when the four, third man comes in in ice hockey, look whether you like it or not, it's part of the story. You don't cut away, you don't go and look at people in the crowd, you don't have put in nice pictures of, you know, people doing nothing. You show the story, the good and the bad. Golf never shows the bad unless its hand is totally forced, and sometimes even then it won't. USGA won't do anything about Patrick Reed. He'll just wander through this and not a problem. Danny Lee, what nothing will happen to Danny Lee. Um, it's a it's an issue the game's got. I reckon it's scared to to tell its own truth on occasions like this, and I think and it's embarrassing for golf coverage not to pick up this stuff and and tell the story while it's happening. Well said, Andy. And I, uh, in addition to that, it's ironically what people are talk will, will talk about. So you're not <laughs> only not telling the truth, you're actually missing a key part of the story that you know people don't. People know that 99% of golfers are well-behaved and good people and play by the rules, etc. 
but that doesn't stop them from you know watching the one percent and seeing a bit of their own bad behavior come to life so yeah and no, i couldn't agree with you oh, more. Well, look, just... he, he, yeah, last thing on this right so we we knew that you know this is not the regular time slot for the us open it was up against the nfl on sunday it got caved and it was slaughtered from a tv ratings perspective it shed about 65 percent of its audience from the saturday to the sunday its numbers were horrific like 542,000 average in America. That's like no one watching it in America. There's not, literally no one watching. If if you're watching a game in the NFL or you're doing something else and somebody says, if it happens to happen on the Sunday, somebody says, the the Twitter, the, the, the grapevine starts going cocoa bananas because Patrick Reed's at it again. Well, people will switch over. If you want to save the thing from a TV perspective... That is what people will turn over to watch. Oh, what's going on? And not only that, you've got some of the you've got great commentators. You've got people who have lived the game, who are there right then, right there, who can tell the story. Don't let somebody else do it. You you've got the you're doing it. It's your product. It's your property. I can't believe that um, there's a reluctance from TV producers and and on air broadcasters who make the call at the time. No, no, let's not show that. Oh, I can't believe they've got a reluctance to. I just don't want to upset anybody. It's it's childish, it really. It's, is. it's a really good point. Um, and I just I'm, I just correct my own mistake, Andy. That was the third round that Danny Lee did that, not the yeah. second round. Sorry. Yeah. He with, yeah. withdrew to leave an odd number in the field for the final round. So sorry for that. Um, Patrick Reed, to me, um, nowhere near the offence that he's been accused of, and we've seen correct um, in the previous. Um, I guess chapters of the Patrick Reed bad behaviour files, but this will be the first of many. I assume, or I hope that doesn't happen, but I expect that it'll be the first of many times that the boy who cried wolf gets bitten on the backside because he did something that was neither here nor there. It wasn't horrendously cheating. It might have been construed by some as cheating, but the fact that he's got runs on the board now. Um, puts it in people's eyes as, oh, look at Patrick Reed, he's doing it again. He's mm. uh, flattening out his lie, improving it. What a dirty little scumbag he is in a golfing sense. Again, comes back to the organisers of the sport, the officialdom, to say, you've done something wrong in the first place. In this case, perhaps the sand in the Bahamas last year was the mm-hmm. breaking point. We should have nailed it on the head then. Take your penalty, do everything that's um, would have been seen by many to be appropriate in that instance and we wouldn't have this discussion now at all um but because the game hasn't acted again um you know it festers and people who are watching it know exactly what's going on no one talks to exactly what you just said if you're watching it you actually know what's going on Mm. you know you don't you don't need your hand held through some of these nuances um talk about it get it over and done with move on Yep. It's, it's simple to me, but anyway. It is, I agree. Um, okay, that's that. Uh, it's Thank You Super Week. Am I right in saying that? It is, it is. It is. Well, some of us who've been listening to Rye Waddington continue to talk about golf continuing over in the States with popularity of unseen rates before. It's like a twisting of the knife in the pit of one's gut, depending on where you live in our great country. But uh, And some supers aren't having too many golf course, golfers on their golf courses at the moment, but Brett Robinson's going to join us, industry editor of the Industry Mag. He knows the plight uh, and the profession better than most. He's going to join us to tell us about the significance of this week on the other side of the break. You're listening to Inside the Ropes. 
Let's go back inside the ropes with Golf Australia. Great to have you with us. Been a fair bit on the agenda today. Um, so much so in a major championship week. You may be forgiven for um, not noticing the fact that it's Thank a Super Week here in Australia. And for those of us down here in Victoria, we don't get a chance, Hazy, to do it face-to-face. Uh, for many of us, those of us in metropolitan regions, of course, because we can't get to our golf courses at the moment. But it doesn't mean we can't uh, elsewhere make sure that we recognise the work being done by supers and their crew uh, all over Australia to get our courses to the condition we want them to be and allow us to enjoy the game of golf, which is so important. Brett Robinson is a man who knows uh, the plight of supers you know, more than most. He's the editor of the industry magazine Australia Turf Grass Management Journal. It's the wisdom, if you like. There's probably better ways of describing it than that, but of, uh, of the industry and uh, he's been good enough to join us to have a chat about the week. Hey, Brett, thanks for joining us, mate. Morning, Andy Hazy. Thanks for having me on, guys. Sure, there's a better way of describing it than the wisdom of the industry. You know, what, what, you, what have you got, Hazy? Have you got something better for me than that? Oh, I would say it's um, not only a rec- like a, 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 a tome of record, Andy, but it's it's one of the it's a very obscure place to find some of the best interpersonal golfing stories you'll ever find. Uh, Brett's, uh, I'm not trying to sort of talk him up too much here before he rambles on any, but he's one of the <laughs> most respected journos in the golf industry, yet not many people outside it even know he does the stuff. So if you ever want to read grassroots stories, Andy, it's the one you go to. Oh, and a multi-award winning uh, contributor to the um, to the written history of the game here in Australia too, Brett, so we should acknowledge that right from the word go. Um, what's what's Thank a Super Week all about? What, what's, why do we have... Why do we have a week like this? Yeah, so guys, this year, uh, the Australian Sports Turf Managers Association, who I work for, we've teamed up with uh, overseas superintendent counterparts in the US, UK, Canada, Europe, to hold what's the uh, the inaugural International Super, uh, Thinker Superintendent Day, which is today. Uh, we've all run similar days separately over the last couple of years with great success, but this is the first time where we've combined it into a big global campaign, obviously, with, with what's going on around the world at the moment, so... Uh, hopefully gain a bit of traction and get a bit of recognition for our members. Um, so, yeah, this morning, all of our all of the associations have released a, a short 30-second thank, uh, thank you video, which we've pushed out through social media channels and which will appear on the Golf Channel as well. Um, and then we're going to be posting messages throughout the day touting sort of the, the ways that Supers and their teams make the game more enjoyable. So, yeah, we're just basically encouraging all golf clubs, uh, golfing organisations, golfers who, who love the game and I love the course to get active on social media using the, the thank a super hashtag and just post a message of thanks to their uh, course superintendent and teams and just for the hard work and effort that uh, goes into uh, preparing their uh, courses. So, uh, yeah, we post a photo of their team, the superintendent, their course, and, yeah, just get active on social media and, and give, us, uh, give the guys some deserved recognition in what has been a pretty difficult year. They're the unsung heroes of pretty much every club around the around the country, Brett, aren't they? What what would a bit of thanks actually do to the to the supers and their teams? Yeah, just just that recognition, Hazy. I think that yeah, they, as we all know, it's a pretty challenging, uh, pretty challenging job at the best of times. They work with Mother Nature for a start, and that's uh, that's the biggest uh, biggest thing they have to contend with. Um, member expectations as well, and obviously this year's been a hell of a lot more challenging for obvious reasons with COVID-19 and 
uh, our members have certainly played a, a key role in uh, developing and maintaining all the safety protocols that they now have to adhere to to allow golfers to to get out there and and enjoy the game. And yeah, the guys have had to significantly adjust their operations, whether it's splitting their crews, uh, maintaining the course with less golf uh, with less staff, um, increased focus on hygiene and machinery and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so the, the guys can get out there and uh, and play golf. Certainly, the guys in Victoria have had a very tough tough time this year, going in and out of lockdown uh, twice now. So they've had to adjust their operations hugely. Um, so that, that for the most part, they've uh, been able to keep uh, keep uh, maintaining their course to the best they can, and have undertaken a lot of the just more disruptive uh, sort of course management tasks like coring greens, aerating, top dressing, all that sort of stuff, bunker innovations. Um, during those quiet times when there's been no golfers on course, so that when we can get back out there, uh, they uh, the golfers can can head away without uh, having any disruptions. Brett, last time we spoke to someone from your association was your boss Mark Unwin was on, and he was he was rallying the troops around uh, making sure that maintenance uh, was allowed to go on, so that we didn't have you know a, a week or a month or more, uh, heaven forbid of. Yeah inactivity on courses that would render them all useless basically um that obviously proved very successful which was a fantastic result how much strength is the current superannuation uh, superannuation superintendent's association rather um got to pull off these sort of uh, achievements as opposed to yesteryear yeah look we've we've, we've um through uh, through our association we've certainly uh advocated through uh, various government departments to make sure that if we did go into a stage four type lockdown that that uh, we could or here in victoria we could still uh, or the guys could still maintain their courses um that's been a huge uh, a huge uh, achievement to, to 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 get to that um we had the situation over in new zealand where they were uh, they all, all the golf courses were in lockdown guys couldn't get on the course to maintain them but to be honest they the courses actually got through pretty uh, pretty okay um, they were without sort of maintenance for three weeks. Um, so here we've been pretty lucky. Most clubs have kept on their staff. Some have had to reduce numbers a little bit. Um, they've had to split crews, uh, but most of them have been able to keep uh, keep the course or keep course maintenance activities going. And and I think certainly from that first uh, when we came out of that first lockdown and we were able to get back on for a little bit of bit of time, um, some of the courses were in probably <laughs> the best condition we've seen for a long time. And I think now that we're entering spring now, and hopefully we'll be back out there late October. I think you'll see, well, golfers will see some of the some of the best conditions they've uh, they've ever experienced because the courses have certainly enjoyed the rest over the over the winter months, which is generally a hard hard time for for turf. Hey, Brett, we've seen a resolution to the situation up at Royal Sydney during the week. How mindful are is the industry and and supers on the front line? How mindful are they of um, environmental concerns of you know, local residents, you know, um, uh, original vegetation, water, the cost, all of the things that go into it. How, how ever present is this a part of their thinking and, and, and life? It's a, it's a primary consideration, Andy. Um, I think environmental management over the, well, certainly in my time in the industry, I've been been editor of the mag for 17 years now crikey um it's, it's certainly been a, a massive shift in uh in how superintendents approach uh their environmental responsibilities uh, golf courses are as we know certainly in urban environments are, are probably the last remaining tracks of sort of open green space and we, we as an association we did a study with the university of melbourne a few years back which looked at 
the biodiversity uh, uh, benefits of golf courses, and, and and that found a lot of a lot of positives for um, the role that golf courses play in, in promoting and, uh, and and protecting fauna and flora in, in, in various areas. Um, so yeah, it's a huge it's a huge consideration, um, and it's certainly one of the most uh, important aspects that a superintendent and their crew will, will deal with as part of the management of their course and. And look, yeah, as, as much as they they love providing the, the the surfaces that the golfers play on and making sure that they're the best, they're uh, they're in the best condition possible, the out of play areas are just as important and um, and mm. and and enhance the whole aspect or the whole the whole joy of of playing this game we love. So yeah, look, it's it, it's a massive it's a massive part of our industry, and we certainly, as an association, promote that very heavily. Um, we have a lot of a lot of uh, talks at our annual conference and seminars on environmental management. We have a column in our magazine devoted to environmental management. So it is a, it is a huge focus, and um, yeah, whether it's water, reducing water usage, um, reducing pesticide usage as well, uh, it's a, yeah, it's a it's a massive aspect, mate. And so the, the, the one thing we're seeing, you know, we're seeing the evolution of, you know, drought resistant, um, weather tolerant. Grasses, you know, particularly in putting surfaces, in recent times, it, it's been a in the time that I've had any understanding, and it's it's very marginal my understanding of all of this stuff. But <laughs> but that's been a real that's been how significant has that been in terms of the conversation we've just been having the the evolution of the sort of grasses that we use that um, that that don't need as much management in a country where we have such sort of temperamental weather like Australia. Yeah, look. Certainly, the past or past sort of twenty years has seen a huge, a huge change in uh, the varieties that have come out, and just yeah, their, their hardiness, their drought tolerance, their salt tolerance. Because obviously, a lot of courses rely on yeah. on reclaimed yeah. water, which uh, which has high salt content. So, yeah, whether it's been grasses, cooch grasses, they're a lot hardier, a lot more disease resistant, and yeah, some of the the R and D that's gone into into developing these grasses to make sure that they are more sustainable. Um, in regards to inputs, is, is quite phenomenal, really. Um, and a lot of that work's come out of the US. We've got some fantastic research uh, that's been done here in Australia on on new turf varieties. There's there's some in the pipeline, some cooch varieties, cooch grass varieties uh, that have been trialled at the moment um, that uh, that are looking very promising for that next sort of next generation of of, of, fair, of fairway turf. So, yeah, it's uh, it's 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 been an amazing sort of transition over the last. Uh, Last sort of two decades, it's uh, it's, it's amazing. That, like I, I think golfers are very fortunate to to be playing on some of the surfaces that they are now. When you look at some of the some of the conditions, I know when I was growing up, it was <laughs> dirty old tyke, and um, it was uh, it was <laughs> it was uh, it was yeah, pretty rough and ready. But now, uh, yeah, with the, the guys, are, or golfers are very fortunate with some of the conditions that they're they're able to play on. Brett, just one quick one for me: Do the people from say I don't know? I'm just picking random clubs. Caratha Golf Club to Air Golf Club to Kingston Beach Golf Club, like the three corners of Australia, are they vastly different problems facing all the crews? Do they share information or do they just go, you are just so radically different to me, it's totally different, I've got nothing for you? Yeah, look, look every course is, is different, like... Like I live in I live in uh, Melbourne, and I'm sure Rosanna and Heidelberg, which are the nearest courses to me, are very. While they they're only probably a kilometre apart, are very different in the way that they manage the course. So yeah, look, every course is different. Every superintendent has their own 
uh, challenges, whether that be soils, turf varieties, budgets, resources, all that sort of stuff. But one of the great things about the, this industry is is that they it's very uh, everyone will help each other out. So if, if the superintendent needs a bit of advice, they'll jump on the phone, jump on social media, to, whether it's one guy in, in WA speaking to a guy in Sydney, everyone's sort of very will always help each other out. It's a very sort of fraternal sort of organisation in that or industry in that respect. And uh, look, at the end of the day, they, they want to provide the best services for their members and for golfers as possible, so any help that they can get if they're unsure. Um, but, yeah, look, everyone's dealing with their own own challenges and their own sort of little idiosyncrasies with each course, whether it's microclimates and turf varieties, all that. So, so yeah. But, uh, no, it's, it's, a great, it's a great industry. The guys are just just fantastic to deal with and... As an editor of the uh, industry magazine, it's it's one of the pleasures of my job to to talk to these guys and to share their stories. And you imagine, can you imagine this the super at Caratha with a bit of the rainfall from the air golf club at his disposal? Oh, oh mate! <laughs> it's, uh, I tell you, the more you the more you understand, you don't have to understand a lot of it. By the way, you don't need to become you know a, an agronomy expert or anything like that. But the the more you understand about any of this stuff the more respect you have for yeah. the staffs and the boss who do turn the golf courses out the way they do. We are blessed. I mean, public access golf courses here in Australia, you can just about step on any course in Australia now, public access or not, and know that you're going to get a pretty good golfing experience. We are mm-hmm. so, so spoiled. And it's because of the you know the care and the professionalism of um, the people who... Mate, I was a member at... Um, when I was living in the bush, Brett, I was a member of a little course called Trentham up near Dalesford. There was a, two blokes. Yep. There was the full-timer <laughs> and his little assistant. Like he always had a teenager yep. who was his little assistant learning the caper. The way, and they had po, poa greens. The way they turned that course out for, well, unless there was snow falling, the way they turned that course out 12 months of the year was unbelievable. We took Clayton, Clayton Stanley and, um, and Lynchy come up for a game one day. And Clayton actually wrote, how can, the, how can a course uh, with a staff of two have the best greens in Australia? Um, it was, so, you know, it, it, it just goes to show that those who love, um, who love the caper, um, they, they do a job that hopefully doesn't get taken for granted in a, in a week like this um, is an important one. Get out one. and yeah, thank Yeah, absolutely. Yep, yep. Hey, Brett, thanks for being part of it. Thank you very much, guys. Appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, look forward to seeing you back out in the course soon, hopefully. Yeah, keep our fingers crossed. Brett Robinson, editor of the Industry Mag, that uh, tells the story of um, superintendents. Super, you've got it in my mind now. Yeah. Superintendents <laughs> and the job they do here, there and everywhere. Hey, a break here on Inside the Ropes. Back to wrap the program up after this. Let's go back Inside the Ropes with Golf Australia. Been on the plate today. We've been here, there, and everywhere. Got a few other bits and pieces we need to get to before we uh, wrap up another one. I'm still in pain. I'm still in pain yeah. with Hannah, Hannah Green. I don't know how many people are following her. Well, her journey through the um, LPGA tournament, the Portland, whatever it was, Classic, um, Portland Classic. It was hers. She had it. She was hers. She had. She was home. She was absolutely home in her. It was her tournament, and then. Oh, four bogeys on the last six holes, and she's just played her way out of the thing. It was hard to watch. 
and she's already developed a reputation as a bit of a smooth closer. So it was really mm. sort of doubly painful to watch. Still a good result, but it's just oh, yeah. when when you you don't often have a tournament sitting in the palm of your hands, especially a short tournament with the smoke over there on the um, northwest of the United States. Yeah, it was fifty four right. holes, and you you know it's a sprint, and you don't often get that chance. But there it was, and unfortunately it ebbed away. So um, you know, top ten. LPGA Tour is nothing to sneeze at. It's just, you know, it's a what might have been sort of situation. But I think, Andy, she'll learn a lot from that with the um, KPMG coming up where she's going to be on the, all the posters again as the defending mm. champion. Um, she's obviously playing well, Hazy. She's in good form. Like, she's, you know, that, this is a bad way to finish a tournament, but she's in good nick. She's started, yeah. her, started her season pretty well. So, yeah. um, Georgia Hall wins. Uh, she wins the playoff. She plays the right way. She was... Overwhelmed again. The open, the uh, women's open champion from a couple of years ago. She plays all the right shots in the right way. So um, she's, she's a pretty a very popular, popular very popular yeah. person on tour, Georgia Hall, and yeah. um, justifiably so as well. Andy, I just want to mention while we're on the women's game, uh, our friend Steph Kiriakou, um, who stormed home again in a 54-hole tournament, the French Open. Um, that's a third top five finish in a row. It's unbelievable. As a as a little rookie on that ladies European tour, she's now, I want to keep, keep in mind that when I tell you this, her win at Bonville this year doesn't count because she wasn't a member. She wasn't even a professional at the time. She's three points, I think behind Alice Houston as the rookie of the year on the LET, having not started until the Scottish open, basically um, in terms of accumulating points anyhow. So uh, incredible what she's doing and now in the top 10 in the the race to the Costa del Sol the LET's equivalent of the race to Dubai uh, what an unbelievable month she's having over in Europe and when you talk to her it's awesome she's such a she's such a ripping young person but when it you bobs talk up to her, every... she, yeah, go on. yeah which, when she's talking she just um she goes oh I'm not doing anything special it's just this is what I should do you know it's <laughs> it's a very matter of fact it's like there's much more of this to come, and when I start playing well, look out. Well, that's how she plays, and it bobs up every now and again, coverage of the LET. I don't know why we don't get more of it. It's probably a tough market here in Australia but to find space, but it does pop up every now and again and has in the last couple of weeks, and oh, she's every inch a player. There's no doubt about that. Hey, um, staying in Europe, um, Mav Ancliffe, we didn't have a great representation in Portugal, but... He's um, finished top 10, 12 under the card. I've never heard of the bloke. Have you ever heard of Garrick Higo? I've never heard of this South African, the bloke who won it. No, they've just got a factory of players over there. It's a, it's a good effort, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, he shoots 19 under and wins. But Mav Ancliffe, this is, um, this is a very bold step in the right direction for this young fella. Um, massively so. Um, you know, We talked about him a lot last year when he was dominating in China and he was trying to get to these points. And I... I Again, it's a progression. He's coming from a different path to the, you know, the Colin Morikawa's and Matt Wolf's of the world. He's five, six rungs back. But as he gets more comfortable in each of the progressions, just like Mark Leishman did before him, I think you'll see good things from Mav Ancliffe. Uh, Steve Looney got his nose in the frame uh, against the old boys before he... Uh, just wilted a little bit in the end. Jim Furyk beat Jim, uh, Jim Kelly, uh, Jerry Kelly in a playoff over there. So, um, so that was that. What else have you got for us? Well, I'm going to give you two seconds notice and maybe mention in a second, if you don't mind, something about the longest day in golf because I'm yep, going to good. give um, the doing it for Jared 
push uh, another plug here. Um, we've had Bryony Lyle on talking about the importance of all the club members have just donating their their membership members their competition fees for a round of golf to a cause called Doing It for Jared, which is one of the key fundraisers for the Challenge Foundation that was so dear to his heart. Um, it's been dealt a little bit of a blow in terms of the Australian PGA because that was mm-hmm. going to be, uh, you know, a key part of it, and it still will be, but it's been delayed until February, obviously, the way things stand. So don't let that one out of your mind if you don't mind, guys and girls out there. Get one of your members' days organised around doing it for Jared. You can find it all at challenge.org.au. Um, and, and get among it. I know that it's very hard to promote golf things when there's no tournaments to hang the, hang all your promotions on at the moment. So it's something that we all need to keep in mind. Here, 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 here. And you mentioned the longest day. Uh, the, it's become an essential part of um, many of ours, our calendar calendars, really. It's a day we look forward to. And um, Victoria's been, um, you know, fundamental and an, and an epicenter, really, of, of the day, and it's been raising incrementally more money for cancer research every single year. Um, we're going to need to lean probably on other states a bit this year to get involved, and if you've never done it before, you play 72 holes in a day. You and I have done it for the last few years together and had a great time doing it with your great mate Dave Wilder, and um, we all we all love it. You hit off at first light, you finish at about 8 o'clock. Uh, you can't believe that you can do it until you do it, and then you can't wait to do it again. Probably not the next day, but a week <laughs> later you start looking forward to the same event next year. So it raises, it's, it's you know, golf, and it's fun, and through the whole thing you, it helps raise some money. If you just Google the longest day, go to the Cancer Council, all of the, um, all of the directions you need are there. Speak to your club hook up two or three of your mates. You can easily do it with three of you. I reckon three balls are fine. you probably do it a four ball if you all do it in the right spirit. Um, you'll have a great time. You really will. It's a fantastic day. Um, so, you know, I don't know, what's, I don't know what our likelihood is in Victoria this calendar year to get it done. I'm, I'm fingers crossed, obviously, uh, that we'll all be able to do it. But if you're out of Victoria, um, pick up the slack and have a go. and You'll, you'll love yourself yeah, silly yeah. for doing it. Yeah. Well said. Andy, you mentioned before when we were talking to Brett briefly, and I just wanted to touch base on Royal Sydney. Um, it seems like it's uh, a goer now, even if it's delayed a little bit. Yep. Um, but there's been a, a compromise between the, the, uh, the Greens party of the area and those at the Royal Sydney Golf Club to keep the canopy of some of the trees that doesn't impinge upon the design that was agreed by the course members. So we'll see a bit more of that, but um, thankfully that seems to have become less of an issue. So that's, that's a good result uh, for all involved, hopefully. I want to make special mention, Andy, of uh, a young girl who's really going places. And I know we've, I seem to say that a lot, but um, Hurgen Park, um, who we mentioned earlier this year, uh, as the Australian junior champion, which is a phenomenal effort. She's uh, South Korean. She's been in Queensland for several years now. Uh, very hopeful that she can whack on an Australian flag here at some stage, Andy, on the bag. But um, she's really showing great promise. And at the week, this week, um, won the second consecutive for her Catherine Kirk Championship at uh, Mount Coulomb, of course, there in, on the Sunshine yeah. Coast. So. Uh, on way, on the way, Andy. Just if you don't mind, just peeled off a lazy 62 at Mount Coulomb, Hurdjian <laughs> Park. So, still eligible to play in the Australian Junior, the reigning Australian Junior champion, 
uh, honestly, the Black Book's getting full, but um, well played, Hedgin. It's just phenomenal golf. Um, one by eight shots, he's down. So a real, a really big talent. And while I'm at it, Andy, I guess the, the younger edition of that, uh, Sarah, Sarah Hammett from Emerald Lakes won the under-15 title at four under as well. So um, there's some really good golf being played by some young young women in Queensland there. That was fantastic. Under-15? Yeah, 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 and just ripping off rounds under par, and oh, you know it, this isn't this isn't Royal Queensland. We get that, but it's no, a really yeah. nice course, Mount Coolum. It's 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 a quality course. Um, in fact, I think it's well, it might have even been Maroochee River. It was Maroochee River. It was Maroochee River, it. I reckon. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yep. you're right, yep. Maroochee River. So it's mm. um, yeah, just you know, it's great golf. It really is. Sorry, we've got the courses wrong there. Apologies. No, that's all right. Um, but yeah, no huge, huge effort from the young young women up there. Um, I do want to mention that you mentioned Hannah. I should have done this before, Andy. But um, the Dunes Golf Club down on the Mornington Peninsula has unveiled a plaque honouring Hannah Green down there for her win at the Dunes Medal, um, which yeah. is great. Sort of in the course where she did something special there. So good on them for recognising a major champion. Um, and I want to, while we're talking about the women's game, I just want to give quick. Call Sarah Kemp took up the cudgels this week, Andy, alongside a lot of other women on the LPGA tour, around um, a fight with Mizuno this time, trying to get help for one of the players. Did you see any of that on social no, media? No, I missed it. No, no. Uh, there's been quite a ruckus again, sort of along the lines of Inby Park and the yep. uh, trying to get the the three wood across um, last year, um, but the women are starting to unite, which is I think really powerful and, and a good message for the uh, the manufacturers and there's you know there's different versions of the story and there's probably a truth somewhere in the middle but uh, it's really good to see um, well, in this case Sarah Kemp but she was alongside a whole host of other LPGA Tour players doing so to step up and call this stuff out um, and there's no way that the things that they're requesting I won't go into the details would have yeah. happened on the men's tour so good on them for sticking up for themselves um, and we might talk about that she's a semi-regular on the podcast, Sarah, so we, I'm sure she'll have a fair bit to say about that next time we get her on. Yeah, and one last thing from me, Andy. Sorry, there's so much to get through. No, no, not um, at all. Our friends at the Australian Golf Digest uh, have just put out uh, this week, their, would you believe, Andy, their 600th edition, which for a monthly magazine represents obviously 50 years of publishing, which is a, yep. a phenomenal effort. Um, there's a scratch and sniff element to the cover Andy you can scratch what? the cover and it smells apparently of golf wouldn't you believe that well yeah well that, that that conjures up all sorts of possibilities to be honest but um if you play golf with some of the blokes I play golf with you you probably don't want to smell <laughs> too much of them to be honest but I will just say Andy well um while I'm and I'm searching for this on my computer while we're talking so I apologize yeah. um that one of the things that they've put up as part of this this week, oh, and I've got no, I'm, I'm not going to be able to find it here, which is going to be mm-hmm. typical. But one of the things that they're selling the, the magazine on this this time around is the um, top hundred players uh, of Australian golf in the history of the game. Um, and they've I, can I go through the top ten because I'm sure it's going to create yeah. a huge debate. Yeah, um, go on. So the top they've done it with the um, with as I said, part of the six hundred collector's edition issue and the top 10 they've settled on i'll come at it from the other end 10 is jason day nine jim ferrier eight jan stevenson seven david graham 
six Adam Scott, five, I love this, Walter Travis, four, Cal Nagel, and then the big three in many people's eyes. And everyone's mm-hmm. got an opinion on this. Yeah, absolutely, uh, we do. Maybe we should have started the show so we could have talked about it a bit longer rather than end. But they've gone for Peter Thompson at number three, Kari Webb at number two, and the big shark at number one. Yeah, well, it's the ongoing debate, isn't it? It's the one that we've had uh, here, there and everywhere uh, amongst <laughs> our mates who love the game for a long time. And um, they, AGD's had a crack at, you know, putting their stake in the ground and they're stuck with that now forever. They won't be able to, as a collective, that's that's the way they will never budge now. That's true. Norman, It's, it's funny Webb, though because the rest, the rest of the list there that I read out are all linked by major championships. Um, mm. So, the and Walter Travis probably the the odd one out there, uh, but um, they've overlooked that theory in the top three because they've got the you know the two mm. most prolific major winners, um, two and three behind Greg Norman. So, yeah, it's fascinating. I, I it'll be a good read. I haven't read the the next group of players behind the top 10 yet. I haven't got the, the addition to smell the smell what golf smells like yet. But, <laughs> right. um, yeah, congratulations to all Australian Golf Digest, um, along with Golf Australia Magazine, the two really austere publications that we have promoting the game. And, and you know, with congrats on a huge milestone. That's a great achievement, 50 years. Here, here. Um, righto, that's, uh, that's it. We're done. Episode 182, a fair bit to mull over. Seriously, if you've got any, right back to the top of the show, if you've got any views, well, if you've got any views on the one, two, three, uh, you've got any views on uh, what Bryson DeChambeau is bringing to your appreciation of the game of golf, we would love to hear from you. And we'll, um, if we get a few tweets, tweet responses, we'll rattle through those uh, on next week's show. Um, good on you. See you then. Thanks, Murray. Righto. Thanks for being part of it. Inside the ropes, Bryson DeChambeau becomes the latest uh, major champion. You know, just in a little side to that, you know what the two next uh, men's majors are that we've got to look forward to? Yeah, well, yes, I do, as a matter of fact. Come Masters on. and the Masters. There you go. That goes all right, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> so we get a bit of a we get a bit of a, an Augusta hit uh, for those who uh, that way inclined. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, back to do it all again next week. We'll see you then.